Dodd Fathers. You should keep going. I want you to do Come the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, who's going to do Jesse's part? I think that's going to have to fall to you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Mike. And I'm Lenny. <laughs> we are the Dad Fathers coming at you with some Jesse Less energy, unfortunately. Jesse is on vacation. He has decided that he did not want to take us, and we had to just pick up the pieces when he was gone. I mean, I don't know what we're doing here anymore. I just thought that when he would go to Cabo, we would go to Cabo. I, I thought that too. Lenny, did you get an invitation? I didn't, although I am sitting in Jesse's kitchen petting Jesse's dog. I see. So I feel like that sort of works. Have you taken over his life? He's single white female (laughs) in Jesse. (laughs) (laughs) What's it what's it like? What's it like in Jesse's house? Um, it's pretty nice. There's air conditioning, which is exciting here in Phoenix. (laughs) I imagine. I I have to say, uh, those pictures behind you are very nice. I'm looking at Letney's face and also uh, four beautiful pictures of flowers and plants that are slightly crooked, and it it is bothering me. And Jesse, when you come home, if you could take care of that, please, and thank you. Um, Very much appreciate it. You know he's not going to. I know. He's going to sit there forever. Liz, Liz, when when you get home, could you please take care of that? Yeah, there you go. But anyway, we are joined uh, here by Letney, taking over Jesse's spot while he is out. Uh, we're all going to be, we've been kind of jumping in and out, all of us. Uh, you know, it's the summertime, people going on vacation. And Mike, you just had a baby. Well, you just got a baby. Where'd you buy My wife baby? had a baby. Oh, okay. okay. So, so I was there. I was involved. Yeah, um, yeah very and, active participant. Uh, we brought him home and uh, he's doing well. Great. M- Mom and son are doing well. It's my first boy. So the name will live on. Very excited about that. We love you, Mike. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, the first book I read. Oh, yeah. um, After having a son was The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Of course you did. Um, (laughs) I felt like that was great preparation for uh, our life to come. Just don't let him eat people. Yeah, that's it. It's really easy. Yeah, that's that's the only lesson that that father passes down. Have a child. (laughs) (laughs) Don't eat people. That's all I have for you, son. Uh, and then also in about a month, I will be stepping away as well as my wife is also expecting. So thank you for your patience. We'll be jumping in and out, but uh, we want to keep doing the show for you. So we'll all be here in some semblance or combination of some kind. Um, but until then, Letney is here, as always, doing the grunt work because Jesse just wanted to go on vacation. <laughs> pieces. Well, Jesse, snow plows through the Swiss Alps. I don't know what you do in the Swiss Alps, but I don't know where he is on vacation. I don't either. I mean, I said Cabo. I thought that was a pretty oh. accurate. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. <clears throat> but we're here on our second episode of our Western series. We started off with Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's best picture winning film from 1990. And now we are here today doing 310 to Yuma from 2007. I feel like this is a pretty big one for all of us. Uh, Mike, what's what's your nostalgia for this? Well, uh, so we've actually talked about this one before on Jesse's birthday episode a little bit, um, and we realized in that episode that we needed to to have a full episode devoted to this movie. So I'm excited to uh, to be talking about it. So that's part of my nostalgia is uh, sitting here with with you and and talking about how cool this movie is. Um, you know, when I first saw this movie, um, 
it was not, I wasn't blown away by it. I was kind of disappointed actually. And uh, I, I talked about it there, but um, we had, so it came out in 2007. It's a big year for movies. Yeah. It's a whole lot of really good movies came out in 2007. And uh, it was the third in a train of sort of Western oriented movies that I saw with uh, some of our family friends. It began with, um, I think there will be blood. Yeah. And then went to no country for old men and then to three ten to Yuma. And in my mind, in estimation, no will be there will be blood and no country are two of the best movies ever made. And this is not maybe one of the best movies ever made. So coming into it with that energy was not a positive uh, experience for yeah. 310. It was it was good, but I was just kind of like, well, this isn't this isn't no country for old men like why watch any movies if it's not No Country for Old Men? It's, 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 like, old it's like going to a, a, a wonderful like three-star Michelin restaurant and having a fantastic meal versus like eating a hot dog while drunk. <laughs> <laughs> like the hot dog is yeah, like hot like and like tasty and wonderful in its own way. It's just not, you know, the experience that you yeah. already had. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But so like when I watch it again, uh, I was I was blown away by it, actually, uh, when I watched it again. It's a beaut it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautifully shot um the acting is very good um it's a ton of fun and i uh i i feel bad because for years i was like oh three tenths of yuma it's not that good it's not really worth your time to watch um but at this point i'd say yes i think it is very to all those time. people that mike ever told that to <laughs> he is publicly recanting his statements. i'm recanting <laughs> i'm sorry that you haven't seen this movie because of me Nice, nice. Uh, yeah. what, what about you, Letney? What's what's your nostalgia for this? Yeah, I mean, I think mine is basically the polar opposite of Mike, uh, where, so I watched the, our, our family watched the original um, 57 version growing up. So I was already very excited about the plot and the story. And then I don't remember the first time I watched this, but it was the kind of movie that for a long period of time, I'd watch it at least once a year. And it was consistently like a nine out of 10 for me. And I think part of that is, I don't know if this is a personal thing or generational thing, but I feel like at a certain form of age, there's actors you see in certain roles that like imprint on you. Um, so like, I imagine for all of us, The Dark Knight was a formative movie. Oh yeah. And thus Christian Bale as an actor, like has a, a hallowed place in our minds. Greatest living actor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was definitely true for Christian Bale and Russell Crowe for me. Gladiator, uh, yeah. So this movie was, you know, it's just it's the best of all possible worlds. I mean, it's Gladiator uh, and Batman, you know? Yeah. <laughs> How could it get better? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it was consistently high for me for, for years. And uh, on finally rewatching it for this episode, um, I started to, to see the cracks a little bit. Uh, I still think it's a great movie, but uh, I definitely over overestimated its, its value. I, I agree. This was also, you know, 2007, I was, uh, wait, how old was I? I was 14 in 2007. <laughs> okay, I just did some math. Um, and that year definitely was like the coming of age year for me in terms of like cinema, you know, film, and really getting into movies and as something not just escapism, but something that meant more. And at 14 years old, watching 310 to Yuma and the sort of the back and forth between the, the outlaw with the heart of gold and the family man trying to do his best, the dialogue that they had back and forth was, was astounding to me and something I had not really seen in anything. And it was very exciting. And I remember kind of, I had this with my wife as well, uh, who saw it around the same time. 
and we talked about how a three ten was like hallowed in our in our minds. Like this is this is cinema. Like this is one of the best movies that we've ever seen. And we just kept that up for a long time in our in our dating when we got married and everything. Was we just mentioned three ten and be like, man, three ten Yuma rules, right? Like it's one of the best. And for Jesse's birthday episode, and we rewatched it, we both were like. No, that was just that was just good. That was just a pretty good movie. Uh, I don't know what I was talking about, like, <laughs> and I don't want to take away from it from its its legacy and at all. And I have deep nostalgia and deep love for it. Um, but you know, you you got to estimate things correctly, and it's 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 good. It's very good. Uh, definitely not one of the greatest achievements. Um, maybe not even like the top. Maybe in the top thousand best movies. In like I, the in like the back forty. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to like figure that out. I, yeah, I, that's I, fair. That's so many. Yeah, I haven't seen nearly enough movies to make. And that, like three thousand movies of the best ever made. Was this somewhere? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Like, there's a there's a lot of movies out there, man. A lot of movies. But um, yeah, I think it's funny that we all have that, and it's yeah. nice having this, like, at least for you and me, Letney, having this nice, like, treasured memory of this movie before we we got older and smart. Um, which is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's I kind of funny that. That, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny that you didn't like it, Mike, uh, initially, because it seems like it's a movie that's tailor made for like high school and college boys. You know, it's yeah. like these great iconic actors. It's so quotable. There's so many amazing quotes, and she's like, it's made for teenage boys. Yeah, and yeah. then at a certain I, point, you age out of it. I I know. I well, I kind of have the opposite experience from you guys. I like it more now than I did then. Um, <laughs> I I think I think just you know. Because what we had done with these movies, we like we we'd seen them and then we talked about them for hours together with no country for old men. We watched it two nights in a row, you know, like we watched it and then we talked about it for hours and then went to bed super late, woke up the next day and we're like, let's watch it tonight. Um, And uh, and then, you know, the next week we're like, okay, this is the other big Western. It's a straight Western, except it's going to be, you know, it's going to be gritty. It's going to be violent. And it's going to be meaningful in the same way. And it's not meaningful in the same no. way. It doesn't deal with any of the same sort of like massive existential questions that that some of these that those two movies do, which, uh, you know, like I was looking for that and not getting it. And, and this and this is and, just like a really slick matinee. Yeah. Yeah. This is a really cool movie. You know, it's it's um, and it's touching on some interesting questions or whatever. But I think in, at that point. I was like just looking for, you know, philosophical treatises on life and stuff. And now I'm much less interested in that. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm more like, I want to have a good time. Yeah. You know, this is I'm tired. <laughs> could someone just, could someone just skin that six shooter and shoot somebody yeah. like <laughs> exactly die for my entertainment. Um, but this was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Score by Marco Beltrami and also Best Sound Mixing, which is not the one that I would have thought that this would have gotten. I mean, I guess the sound was good. I have nothing against the sound, but I never at any point when I was looking at this movie was like, damn, the sound is good. It's mixed so well. I, yeah, didn't cross my mind. You know, maybe that's the best sound mixing there is when you don't notice it. In that case, every movie I've seen is the best sound mixing, <laughs> except for Tenet. <laughs> also Magnolia. Or is it the best sound mixing? I don't know. It that's is very question. hard to understand a lot of what's said in Magnolia. Oh, but I, I have I have 
a lot of thoughts about that actually i mean is it just but because julianne moore is like screaming really loudly anyway no, we don't. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's save that for a future episode but the score is really good um i'm not generally a big fan of marco beltrami especially from his career after this uh he seems to be kind of taking anything that comes across his path as long as it's sort of genre related but this score is rocking this is really good it's something i still listen to the themes are, are magnificent but it's directed by James Mangold, who we've had previously talked about in our Logan pod, which we did live back yeah. in the day. That was fun. Well, it was scary too. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, listen, listen back on that one. We did we did half a live show, and then we wrapped up with uh, 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 the rest of the show, basically. We right. couldn't fit into the first hour. Right. Um, so we've already talked about what he's done. But upcoming, we have Indiana Jones 5, which is filming now, starring Harrison Ford, Mads Mikkelsen, Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag, uh, Antonio Banderas. Toby Jones, who is the bad guy in, in Winter Soldier, if you guys remember? No. He's the computer dude, the, the AI. Are we supposed to remember those movies? I don't know. <laughs> but then but then Boyd Holbrook, who's who's one of the bad guys in Logan. And, okay. uh, and Thomas Kretschmann, who's like everyone's favorite German guy. When you need like a handsome German actor, Thomas Kretschmann. There we go. Um, it's written by Jez and John Henry Butterworth, who between them share screenplay credits on Edge of Tomorrow, Get On Up, and Ford v. Ferrari. Um... On a scale of one to ten, right now, how excited are you for Indiana Jones Five? Given the information I've given you, Mike, I want to say two. How about you, Lightning? Well, so I have a question because this is the first time I've heard about it. Is there, are they doing like a, a a Terminator thing where they're kind of retconning Indiana Jones Four and just pretending it didn't exist? I or think they they're trying just to continue gonna, that story. I think they're just going to ignore it because okay. Shia, Shia LaBeouf is nowhere to be seen in this in this cast list. <laughs> okay. In that case, I'm pretty excited. I would say, you said out of five? Out of ten. Out of ten. I would say six. Six. Hmm. How, are you, how excited are you, Vito? I'm at, I'm at a four um, because I'm really scared, actually, that when this movie premieres, it's going to say, in remembrance of Harrison Ford. Yep. And I just really don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's written by Halstead Wells, Michael Brandt, and Derek Haas, based on the short story by Elmore Leonard. Now, the short story is really interesting. I don't know. Did either of you guys have a chance to check it out before this? No, I haven't. I've never read it. The 310 to Yuma story? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I read it this afternoon. And nice. I also watched the 57 version. Of course you did. <laughs> so so envious of your time. Um, yeah, so the, the short story is really weird because it is essentially takes starts when they're in the hotel. Um, and it's just the two men talking. And then it ends as they as they leave and they get him on the train. And they, uh, Dan, Dan, the character in this movie is named a different name in that. Do you remember his original name? I don't. It's a kind of a bizarre name. Yeah. But um, it, he, I, he, he lives though. In yeah. That. Well, and the other weird thing is that the, the Ben character who also has a different name. Yeah. He's is supposed to be like 20 years old. Yes. He's, he's like very this young. young, like gunslinger, you know, and it's a very different feel. Yeah. They even both, talk the, about the movies. Like the only thing they really seem to have in common is the fact that he, the Dan character, is is very principled, and the other character is trying to eat away at his principles. Um, but instead of it being you know a two hour movie, it's like a 20, 15 page short story, and it's just like this this nice conversation between these two men who are stuck in a room for twelve hours, and then the walk to the train station. Um, well, the other thing is that in this one, Dan is actually a marshal. Yeah. So it the whole volunteer aspect is not in the original story at all. Right. So it seems like there's the basic plot sort of, kind but of. everything else is, is completely different. 
Yeah, except for Charlie Prince, who is still named Charlie Prince. Yeah, that's true. That's the one name <laughs> they captured. Yeah. I mean, it's a great name. If I came up with that name, dang. But Elmer Leonard uh, is known, of course, he's one of the great pulp mystery Western novelist short story writers that's ever been, I think. It, movies that have been made from his work. He had a long career. Um, but Ombre, the one with uh, um, Paul Newman, uh, Joe Kidd with um, Clint Eastwood, um, Get Shorty, remember that one, uh, John Travolta, um, Jackie Brown, the Tarantino film, Out of Sight, the Soderbergh film, and then the TV show Justified. But he passed away, actually, kind of surprisingly, considering we're recording this in mid-August. He passed away on August 20th, 2013. Halstead Wells is the first credited screenwriter on here, even though he died 17 years before this this film was released. It's because he's the sole screenwriter on the original 310. Um, he had a pretty interesting career writing, mostly for TV shows, but he wrote for Kojak, Mannix, The Virginian, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Bonanza, and Suspense. Um, he passed away in January of 1990. Um, coming forward here, we have Michael Brandt and Derek Haas, who are a writing team. Michael Brandt is an executive producer on Chicago Justice, Chicago PD, Chicago Med, and Chicago Fire for a combined total of 470 <laughs> episodes of Chicago-based emergency personnel TV dramas. <laughs> I wonder if, uh, where, where does he live? I, <laughs> Ohio? Exactly. I, I, like think, Columbus, I Ohio. think he was born in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> but Derek Haas works with him. He shares most of these credits, um, but he he's written numerous episodes of all of these shows and is the creator of Chicago Fire with Derek Haas. Um, in addition to this, though, he wrote Too Fast, Too Furious oh, <laughs> <laughs> and Wanted and Wanted, the James McAvoy, Angelina Jolie uh, bending bullets movie. Oh. Yeah, yeah, um, not I mean, I want to. I don't want to. I don't want to judge a guy who's clearly doing very well for himself. But I, I wouldn't say those are very quality. <laughs> <laughs> he has an upcoming movie entitled Arthur the King, starring Mark Wahlberg, about an adventure racer who adopts a stray dog named Arthur. I don't know what all, all those words are doing next to each other, um, <laughs> but we'll see what that's like. It's <laughs> a very strange sentence strung together. This movie was shot by Feedin Papamichael, who we previously talked about on Trial of Chicago 7. Huh. Um, he has been Academy Award nominated for that film and also for the movie Nebraska. Don't think that should have happened for Trial of Chicago 7, but uh, hey, yeah. I'm not in the Academy. Yeah. Um, but he's also known for shooting other movies that look really good, like Walk the Line, The Descendants, The Ides of March, and Mouse Hunt. You guys remember Mouse Hunt? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Remember the Hunting the Mouse? Yeah. <laughs> that movie that's based on the board game? Yes. No, that's Mouse or... Trap. Oh, right. I always confused that. But I remember that. I love that movie, first of all, because, I mean, it's obviously directed by Gort Ravinsky, who we've talked about before. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I love it because it opens with that funeral for the old guy, right? Remember? And then they, they trip and the old guy falls down the, the, the body, the old guy falls down the sewer. <laughs> Do you remember this? <laughs> it's crazy. It's a good movie. We'll have to talk about that later. Was the Mousetrap game <laughs> like, connected to Mouse Hunt? Because no. I remember like these two things are very tied in my mind. Well, no. Was there a movie Mousetrap? No. I don't think it's based on Mousetrap. I mean, I could be wrong. I, I just Do you remember, Chris, do you remember Christopher Walken as I the just exterminator? remember like there's all these traps that they set up and they get like trapped in them themselves. Well, but it's just like a bunch of regular mouse traps. Okay. And then they, they, they're in the corner of the room, remember, right? Like, and then the mouse sets them involved. all up. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. I did see this movie. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I don't know when we're going to do that one, but we will do it. Just so I can talk about gore again. It's like my secret mission to just do every Gore Verbinski movie without you guys knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this movie that he shot, this 310 to Yuma movie here, starring Crystal the Monkey 
everybody. Crystal the Monkey, star of George of the Jungle, Dr. Doolittle, American Pie, Night at the Museum 1, 2, and 3, Hangover Part 2, We Bought a Zoo, and Community. This 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 monkey has a better actor than most actors, a better career than most actors. This is an amazing monkey. Wait, what? Yeah. This movie has a monkey in it? This movie has a monkey in it. Where does it have a monkey in it? In the railroad scene, there's it's a, monkey a monkey in the background. Yeah, it's Crystal the monkey. No, there isn't. Yes, there you're, is. You're, you're bullshitting me. Nope. 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 Is there a monkey in it, Letney? I didn't remember it, but I was kind of skimming through the movie today. And it's the scene where, um, what's his name? Not Owen, Luke Wilson is being super racist in the foreground. Oh, and in the background, yeah. his partner is petting a monkey. Yep. That's so. right. Yep. Wow. If you're focusing on the racism, you kind of forget about the monkey. This monkey's had a better career than me, and she's a year younger, too. She's born in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> this monkey's killing it. I just want to shout this monkey out. you know this monkey is still alive? I think she is still alive. She does not have a credited uh, death date, so she's still around, as far as I know. Amazing. She's, okay. got to, she's got to slap so many famous people in Hollywood. <laughs> Man, I wish I was a monkey. I know. <laughs> But rounding out our strong supporting cast, uh, we have people like Kevin Durand, Luke Wilson, and Gretchen Maul. Gretchen Maul continuing to play the same character that she played in Rounders, like the super bummer girlfriend slash wife that is totally right, but we don't like her. (laughs) (laughs) But then we have Alan Tudyk. Alan Tudyk. Fantastic. Alan Tudyk. Okay, so if you don't know his face, you know him because of his voice. He's in Raya and the Last Dragon, Rick and Morty, Doom Patrol, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Moana, Frozen 1 and 2, three Ice Age movies, and Big Hero 6. And if you don't recognize his voice for any of those movies, his face is in Patch Adams, Wonder Boys, A Knight's Tale, Dodgeball, iRobot, Firefly as Wash. Remember Fire- yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was waiting for you to get to that one. Yes, yeah. Firefly. And Serenity, the movie. And Serenity, the movie, yeah. indeed, yeah. And then also Tucker and Dale versus Evil, one of my favorites. And uh, Arrested Development as, as Pastor Veal. <laughs> He's in a new show now, too. Well, I can't remember what it's called. He's like an he alien is. or something. I, yeah, I did see that. And I just, I didn't mention it because I couldn't remember the title. Yeah, all right. But I mean, like, this guy, he gets around. I, oh, yeah. I, he's also so funny. He's so funny. Isn't he in, uh, uh, wait, the, um, the funeral movie? Death at a Funeral? Wait, Yes. No. The American one? one, right? Um, I don't know. That sounds familiar, though. I think he is. He's the guy who gets hot. Like he he takes uh, oh, acid by mistake. Is that yeah. death at a funeral? Yeah, that's death at a funeral. I'm pretty sure that's death at a funeral. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. correct us if not. Yeah. But that movie has a that lot of fans. Awesome. That's really funny. That movie's too. hilarious. Yeah, we're gonna do that. I mean, I'm not gonna show my kids that one, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say too, he voices the the chicken Hey Hey in Moana, which if you remember, <laughs> does not have any speaking lines. He just makes chicken noises. <laughs> That's awesome. They hired Alan Judic to do chicken noises. <laughs> <laughs> then we have legendary actor Peter Fonda, uh, who passed away on August 16th of 2019, nominated for two Academy Awards for Yuli's Gold and Easy Rider. And Mike, as someone who recently viewed Easy Rider, <laughs> what is that movie like? I have no idea. So I, um, I, it's been like on my list to watch it for forever. And we just had a baby and we're in the hospital for a while. Um, in that period of time, I was like, you know what sounds like a good idea? Watching Easy Rider. I watched it. That's about all I can say. <laughs> I, I don't know. It seemed like it was probably um, impactful at the time. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah it, it's a weird movie. You just had to have been there. It's a really, yeah, it's a, it's a weird movie. Okay. Are we going to do it? 
No. Okay. I don't. I mean, I don't feel. Have you seen it? No. I mean, you should see it. You know. Have you seen it, Letney? This is just such a glowing no. recommendation. I feel like there's a million things that are like, oh, channeling the easy rider or something like that. And so I was finally like, okay, I just got to watch this movie so I can be, I know, I know what they mean when they say channeling easy rider. Right. Um, and now I know. Well, I just wanted to get your opinion on that since we're covering him. Yeah. Um, and we might not talk about it again. Yeah. <laughs> Until you tell me when something is channeling Easy Rider. And I, really, please be on the lookout for it so I know. This might be channeling Easy Rider, Vito. Well, you should tell me which parts. <laughs> and exactly how. All right. What, what, is it Kafka-esque? Probably when they take acid. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, now we're getting to uh, to the meat, the, the big players here. We have Ben Foster playing the psychotic cowboy killer Charlie Prince. Yeah! Um, and this guy is like quietly and consistently working and he's always exciting. He's always engaging no matter what he's in. Um, but I also think he's underrated. I think that not enough people know him because he gives so much to these performances and he just, I think he just needs to be around more. They hire him more. Um, but you might know him from Hostels, uh, Hell or High Water, Lone Survivor, um, Ain't Them Body Saints, 30 Days of Night, Alpha Dog, and Hostage. And in all of those, I guess with the exception of Hostels and Lone Survivor and Ain't Them Body Saints, he is uh, a very dangerous fella. <laughs> a very dangerous fella. Then we have uh, Logan Lerman, who looks like a baby in this movie. Yeah. Just a baby. And I'm not used to seeing Logan Lerman look so young. I wrote down here, uh, is a young teen heartthrob who still manages to be one year older than me. It turns out to be true. The secret to good skin is money after all. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, you might recognize him from Fury, Noah, Percy Jackson, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and then The Patriot, his first film role. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Soon to be in Bullet Train. Just to mention Bullet Train again. What is Bullet Train? We covered this a few episodes ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's it's about the, the train that goes really fast and it's full of assassins. And it stars oh, Brad right. Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for that. Give me that bullet. Give me bullets on bullet train. Yeah. Do bullets go faster when they're on a bullet train? I don't know. Are you Einstein? I would like to fight. I, I feel like Einstein is the only person who can answer that. What would happen if you shot a bullet next to a bullet train? And why is it called a bullet train if it goes faster? These are the questions that no one cares about. <laughs> <laughs> if you shoot it if you shoot a gun on a bullet train the bullet just drops to the floor <laughs> it just says i quit that's <laughs> gonna be the movie just like a bunch of people trying to shoot each other in the bullets yeah next up we have christian bale uh the welshman nobody knows is welsh and everyone's favorite actor who loves to gain or lose weight um ford v ferrari vice hostels the big short american hustle the batman trilogy the fighter public enemies and then this is for uh listener of the show mary a midsummer night's dream um american psycho and uh, just for Mike, um, Equilibrium. Oh, yes. Equilibrium. <laughs> it's, the, it's the better version of the Matrix. <laughs> keep saying that. You just keep saying that. Also, Rain of Fire. <laughs> also, Rain of Fire. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I haven't seen Equilibrium since college, but I have very fond memories of that. Wait, Maybe I one? shouldn't rewatch it. Equilibrium. Just preserve it. Oh, yeah. 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 It's fantastic. Yeah, it's you're good. right. It's fine. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Very passable. A good, a good thing to fall asleep to. <laughs> I just really love his move when he like, like does a somersault and like, like he, he puts the magazines back in the, in the guns when he does the somersault. Yeah. Like that's a pretty cool move. I, I mostly remember when he cuts that dude's face off 
and then yeah. they're all still for a little bit and then you see that awful cgi of the guy's face slowly <laughs> sliding off of his skull that was pretty impactful to like a 14 year old movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, holy shit, that's awesome. <laughs> it's also got a great Sean Bean death scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot. It's a really that. cool death scene. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, before this turns into the uh, the, the fan cast for <laughs> Equilibrium, um, you Can't also might know him for that. Newsies. He's the voice of oh, John yeah. Smith in Pocahontas. He's, he's uh, in Little Women, the one with the. Uh, Kirsten Dunst and uh, Winona Ryder. Um, he's in Henry V, Empire of the Sun. That's right. He's just a kid in Henry V. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's also in The Machinist, and he voices uh, Howl in Howl's Moving Castle. Oh. Um, also, got to mention, The Prestige. In The Prestige. That's right. We love this guy. Um, but that brings us to our final guy here, Russell Crowe. Started at the bottom, all the way down there, playing crazy neo-Nazi and romper stomper in Australia. Makes his way to America. He's in The Quick and the Dead, Virtuosity, and an L.A. Confidential. Finally breaking out with The Insider, Gladiator, um, A Beautiful Mind, Master and Commander, Cinderella Man, American Gangster, The Next Three Days, No, The Nice Guys. Oh, it never stops. The Russell Crowe train keeps going. <laughs> Even though he's unhinged in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his next film is he's playing Mark Rothko, the painter. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> I would not oh. have thought about him doing that, but I guess that's what he's doing. He's also starring in and directing a film called Poker Face. Interesting. Did but, he direct um, Unhinged? No. Oh, okay. He did not. All right. So Christian Bale and Russell Crowe will be appearing in a film together again in 2022. I have not listed it on this list. Can you guess off the top of your head without checking it out what it is? 311 to you, Mike. <clears throat> that would be a really good movie. <laughs> I don't know how Christian Bale will be in that one, but yeah. I don't know what this is. <laughs> You actually do. You actually do. As do you, Letney. Do you have a guess? Um, Gladiator vs. Batman. Dawn of Justice. <laughs> I would see that. I would see that so quickly. <laughs> it's actually uh, uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. Wait, really? Yep. Russell Crowe's in Thor, Love and Thunder? He's going to play Zeus. Oh. And Christian Bale question. is playing uh, Gore, the god killer. Right. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. I don't know. They just don't seem to work together very often. And I just thought it's really weird that there are two movies of three Tenda Yuma and Thor Love and Thunder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> these huge actors from our childhood or our youth. Yep. Now they're just playing. I, I like that Russell Crowe is like, yeah, I'll be Zeus. I don't know. What do I have to wear? And Christian Bale's like, do I have to get really skinny? Or no, it's really probably fine. No, I'm going to get really skinny. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to our, our question here. Uh, will we show this to our kids and when? Uh, Mike. Yeah, so it was fun watching it again after, so before I had, when we did it for Jesse's episode, I did not have a son, and mm. like, I was trying to imagine, like, what would that be like, uh, but but I, I think I would have wanted it, wanted to show it to, to my daughters, but like, you know, so I'm sitting there, like, rocking my kid, um, my new baby, as, as I watch it, uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to watch this kind of thing <laughs> with him, like, he's gonna love these kind of movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which, uh, so yeah, I think so. I think I'd watch it with him. Wait, when? With him. Um, it, not till they're older, you know, like 16 plus probably. It's pretty bloody. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty violent. What, what about you, Lightning? Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, I think this is a movie tailor made for like, yeah, like 16 year old boys. So yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to echo that. I might, I might go a little bit younger because, uh, I don't know. I saw it when I was fairly youngish. And I don't know, I um, I mean, I guess I was raised in the American West watching a lot of Westerns, so it wasn't that much of a stretch. Like, 
the violence quotient, actually like Big Jake with John Wayne, I would say is much more violent than this film and much more upsetting. We watched multiple people die with a pitchfork in that one, for instance. <laughs> and and it's quite bloody as well, even even being made, you know, 40 years prior. Uh, and so if they can watch something like that, they can watch something like this. The only difference is like this looks a little bit cleaner. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm really excited. I think I think it's going to be a hit. You know, this this. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't I can't wait to like make up a huge batch of popcorn and sit my kid down you know, my daughter, or, or if I have a son someday too, um, and just see their minds get blown <laughs> yeah, and like be alternately scared and thrilled. Um, it, it sounds like such a great joy. I wonder, I mean, I feel like, so for me as a kid, I watched a ton of like Westerns and stuff, but, and, and that was like what our parents watched growing, growing up and sort of as like young people and adults, what movies that came out when we were, you know, teenagers or in, in our twenties, there weren't that many Westerns. Mm -hmm. Most of the Westerns that came out were like talking about the Western genre, which maybe Westerns have always done. But I wonder, kind of wonder about that. Like, you know, with that being the case, like, are we going to show our kids as many Westerns as, as maybe we were shown by our, our parents? No, no, because I don't enjoy watching as many Westerns as my parents wanted to watch. Yeah. Um, I like watching other things, uh, but I do still have a, if there's if there's a western, I'll, I'll watch a western. Yeah, like, I love westerns, but I also we own so many. There are so many westerns that no one talks about, and that's for a good reason. <laughs> but we owned a lot of those, and so we watch them anyway. Yeah, like yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the John Wayne movie North to Alaska. Huh. I've seen it so many times. I've never seen that one. It's not it's not very good, <laughs> but I watch it a thousand times because it's just like what we had. Well, um, what's your take on the Sons of Katie Elder? It's fine. I don't really have a frame of reference for it because we own that one. So we watched it all the time. Yeah. And like, the, like, let's the, turn and shoot out like there. rules. Yeah. But it's kind of long for no reason. Yeah. The last time we watched it, we were like, why do we keep watching this? <laughs> this is kind of boring. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, what, what do you think, Lenny? Are you just going to be having the TCM channel just on all the time? Uh, I don't know about that, but I do think that, um, that Western movies are, they're like an archetype. They're like pirate movies, you know? Pirate movies are always going to be appealing as a genre just because of, I don't know, the aesthetic, the action. It's just, it's a fun setting. Yeah. So I feel like that's that's always going to persist, even though it's, you know, it's set in time and everything. But yeah, I just feel like it's it's a inherently attractive genre. Yeah, I, I think those are all those are all good points. Uh, yeah. I think we can revisit that conversation actually a little bit later too. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. Sorry to jump the gun on it. Oh, no. I Step on a future segment. Start it as early as you want. Uh, mm. Fave scenes. I think I'll start with this one um, because I... Oh, wait. Hang on. What, what did I have? No. Shit. Hang on. I'm trying to remember the movie. <laughs> I had I had it locked and like I had it in my head. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with, uh, with one that I'm going to steal from one of you two, which is the stagecoach robbery. Man, that's a badass scene. Oh, in the beginning? Yeah. In the oh, beginning. you're not stealing that from it, me. It's... it's freaking awesome i love uh i love a good robbery i love a good stagecoach robbery and, and you get a sense of all of the characters right there it's so cool um it's well shot uh it's a little bit over the top just slightly a little bit um <laughs> <laughs> the stagecoach crash is like 
this is a car and in the uh, special features they talked about how they had to treat it like a car yeah. to flip it and it was like really, they had to like get this hydraulic piston that, awesome. that they installed on the on in the middle of it that they yeah. had to shoot with like 900 pounds of force to jump the coach over that's so great well even just like okay i like watching it I, like the whole thing is just it's it's a little ridiculous but like just the right amount for me mm-hmm. i don't know like the uh like byron is shooting people far away with a sawed off shotgun. Oh yeah. It doesn't work that way. They're really far. Yeah. Like, he's nailing them. <laughs> and, and I mean like he, he blow, he shoots, um, the, uh, dynamite, right? <laughs> the dynamite. Yeah. That's pretty far away. Yeah. And, uh, and he blows up a guy and his horse and it's just like, Holy shit. Like, I also some... like that. That guy's like going full <laughs> tilt boogie gallop on this horse with all this dynamite. <laughs> I think you have the dynamite guy in the back. Like, yeah. He's, he's waiting. You got a lot of guys you, here. You go with the dynamite way over there. Yeah. It's a Gatling gun. Yes, like that's is. so cool. And it doesn't do anything. It, it's because it's surprisingly a, ineffectual. It, well, it's, it's on a stagecoach, which is going really fast as fast as a car would go and just like how do you aim with that but i think the the point of the gatling gun is that you don't have to that's, <laughs> that's like true. the whole point that's of it you just, you just spray and pray baby <laughs> just keep cranking it <laughs> yeah I, I i love that and i mean like it's it's a long scene and you know you've got um you see uh it starts i mean from the start where where russell crowe is uh he draws the the bird and gets interrupted by charlie prince and he's like annoyed but he's got kind of like Russell Crowe has those eyes that are kind of like they're always laughing, but they're also always angry um, that are just amazing. And, and he does some like cool acting there that I really like. And he leaves the picture of the bird there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just like it gives you this sense of the character that uh, you wouldn't get without it. It's really perfect. It's absolutely unnecessary, uh, but also completely necessary in sort of building this this underlying human um we got us a thinking man's villain here and it kind of yeah and it kind of closes with um with uh him shooting a member of his own uh his own team um and you're like oh this is a bad dude and he gives a reason for it he says he didn't do his job Mm -hmm. he put us all at danger he was weak he is dead yeah and you're kind of like well i get where he's coming from a little bit but I don't really like that. You know, it's good. You're, you're getting a sense that you kind of like him, but you don't think you should. I, don't know. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. thought it was a really cool scene. A lot of fun. A lot of, uh, a lot of character, a lot of blood. It's great. Nice. I, I have to say my favorite is uh, actually my favorite character here is Charlie Prince. Um, I love Charlie. I've always loved him. And so I have two, two with him. But my one is when in the, when they're trying to get Ben to contention to catch the three ten to Yuma, um, they do this like switcheroo with this guy in, in the coach and Charlie's watching and he's fooled and they follow the coach and they, they hold it up and you know, they, they disarm the guy inside and then Charlie starts to burn the coach with the guy locked inside. And he's asking him, you know, where's Ben going? What's happening to Ben? And the guy's like, you know, you got to let me out if I tell you. And Charlie's just quiet. And then he finally tells him and then Charlie leaves and just lets him burn to death inside this coach. And he has that great line, like, they're taking him to contention! <laughs> that he says with all of his volume. Um, I, I love that. because You all forgot what he'd done for us. <laughs> he's so evil. He's so, like, he, he's a rabid dog with a master, which you don't really see very often, um, especially with the madness in his eyes. 
And I love earlier when they go to report that there had been a stagecoach robbery earlier in the movie. And Charlie's walking to the sheriff's office and he just picks up that coat and puts it on. And he walks in and he he looks like he's never like Charlie as a character has never been like a human because he has no idea how humans say stuff or, or use their faces. Because <laughs> he just walks in and, and he tells him that there's there's a coach held up. And then the, the guy who's the representative of the bank is like, why didn't you do something? He goes, they had guns, mister. And they were shooting bullets. <laughs> it's really funny. And then he just gives that weird smile that doesn't that doesn't reach his eyes at all. Yeah, it's just big. It just exposes his teeth like like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those those are my two favorite is I, I just love Charlie. Yeah. Well, what about you, buddy? Yeah, I think my favorite Charlie scene is or really just there's this short little line where uh it's Ironically, not in a scene that I like very much, the whole tunnel sequence, but uh, where he's after they've left and Charlie comes with the gang and he's confronting the, you know, the, the miners and he says, uh, you boys, some kind of posse. And he pulls out his gun and shoots them all. He says, I hate posses. <laughs> I hate posses. Uh, my favorite scene in the movie is, I think, the, you know, the, the final temptation of Dan in the hotel room. Ooh, yeah, yeah. it's good. It's a good scene. And Christian Bale's really interesting in that scene because he's not, they both are because their timing is slightly, it's off from what you would expect them to do. Like when Russell Crowe offers him the money and he's looking him, you know, dead in his eyes and he's looking down and then about a second before you think he should react, he just laughs and it's really surprising. And it shocks me every time I watch it because I'm just not, uh, the timing is off and it feels actually like startlingly human and that feels like a genuine reaction and a, and a genuine way to play that and i was expecting there to be like a hollywood way to play it but i like i like that moment a lot uh i like that whole interaction which is basically the short story <laughs> yeah have either of you guys seen the the 57 version i think i saw it years and years ago but i don't i don't think i ever remember have. it cuz i think that scene is actually better done in the in the the older movie okay Oh. Well, that makes me want to watch it. It's really good. That scene in particular. I, I'm not. I'm still not sure how I feel about how the movies stack up, but I do think that scene is very well executed. Cool. Well, I'll have to check it out because I, I, yeah. I would like a more talky version of this movie. A little bit, a little bit less like being shot at every ten minutes. A little less Michael Bay. A little more. A little more conversation. <laughs> a little less action, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so getting away from favorite scenes and talking kind of around and, and what we like about the movie, maybe uh, we have a couple questions here that Letney came up with. Uh, Letney, you want to ask your first? Uh, sure. I think, um, well, let's see. So um, I, I don't know if I should go too much into the, the 57 version, uh, but um, I think generally there's kind of a progression from the novel to the 57 movie to the, 20, the 2007 movie where it gets gradually more, the decisions the characters make it gradually more irrational to me, uh, okay. or at least not in their self-interest. Um, so, I mean, I guess looking at the novel, um, it's really a pretty straightforward story where uh, you don't really get much of the Ben character's motivations. He's really just trying to escape and there's no big turnaround where he, you know, goes against his self-interest. And what's what I think is the most interesting thing about this movie and what's really at the heart of it is why the characters are doing what they're doing. Because on the one hand with Dan, 
um, it seems like uh, Vito and I were talking about this last night. Uh, it's sort of like Breaking Bad in a way, where uh, throughout Breaking Bad, Walt is justifying what he's doing with the reason that he needs to provide for his family. And then at a certain point in the show, it becomes clear that that's not his real motivation. And it sort of seems like there's a similar thing going on here where um, on the face of it, it's about $200, right? He needs $200 to make it to, ne- to the next six months. But throughout the movie, he's offered, you know, vastly bigger sums. And uh, he's, he's, he's choosing to do a thing that will probably take him away from his family. So he won't be able to provide for them and he won't be able to give them money. So it seems like maybe he's, he's sticking to principles um, idealistically in a way that's not practical or useful. Um, so that's kind of the Dan side of things that I was seeing things. And then on the Ben side of things, it seems like, I don't know, I don't really understand Ben's character. Like hmm. part of me <laughs> thinks that maybe Ben is just really bored. Um, <laughs> because like, you know, with all his flirting and it just seems like he's done everything and he's seen everything. And he's bored by his crew, and he's just looking for something new and interesting. And maybe that's why he's he's kind of going along with what Dan wants to do. But he does things that are objectively not in his interest. You know, he kills his whole gang. He sacrifices himself to go to jail for no reason. Yeah, so I guess I, I, I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. Yeah, I think that that's a good question. Um, I, I kind of wonder about that sort of dichotomy. I mean, like there's definitely a, a change in our understanding of, of Dan's motivations, at least maybe I'll, I'll start there because it starts off with him just like wanting to keep the family alive and the farm going. But even the fact that he's got this farm here and he's like trying to keep the, um, keep the railroad from taking the land. Like that's a classic story, right? Like that's a classic Western story where it's a, a story of principle there. So he, you know, he's kind of a hard headed man. Um, or at least that's what you're, you're expecting. Um, but, uh, but as it goes on, you know, it becomes clear that there's something different. I guess I wonder, like, is it that he's a principled person or that he is like a, a, a hard headed person or is it, I mean, I guess I saw that his relationship with his son was something that was motivating him a lot. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's really clear if there's a dividing line between each of these, like, oh, it's not this, it's this. Really, but it seemed like at least they were all playing together, maybe. Well, I think I think he lays it out pretty well to Gretchen Maul in their in their whispered fight at their house. Yeah. Like <clears throat> he's he's tired of the way his boys look at him and he's tired of the way his wife doesn't. Um, they need this money to get through. Yeah. And the longer that he's with Ben, the more his son is kind of taken in by Ben's charm. And Ben, you know, at first is respectful of Dan and his place, but as they go on, he's less and less respectful of him and outwardly encouraging his son to be rebellious and do what he wants. And the son really loves that. And it's only when they're having the conversation in the hotel room where it feels like Russell Crowe gains more respect for Dan because of his outright refusal to, to bend, to let him go for the money. Because at this point, it doesn't feel like it's about the money so much as it is about this, this stance. He's got to do this to feel like a man, kind of to feel like worthy of his, of his family's affection and honor and respect. Uh, although it is kind of about the money. And that's, that's, I think that's kind of what you're pointing to there. Letney is like, it, it's really, it goes back. Like he uses the justification of needing the money to do the thing, but he needs to do the thing 
just because he needs to do it, but also the money. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, it's another that yeah, question. Guess, it that's what it gets it. interesting because it seems like at a certain point the money and the principle come; they become at odds, right? Yeah, and then Where, I think he chooses the principle. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it really does win out at the end of the day because then his son Will gets to gets to see his dad do this like really incredibly brave and principled thing. You know, standing up for the right. Someone's got to stand in the way of Ben Wade. Someone's got to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. And and he, he pays the ultimate price for it as his son watches. Um, and I think that, to switch over to Ben's character, I think that is the big thing for him, is that he, he finally does respect Dan um, for being this kind of oddity in his bored life, right? He's never seen this guy be this way. And then I think the final injustice of that guy getting cut down in front of his son I think it's kind of a big deal for him. That's that's really where it seems to be too much for for Ben to deal with. Yeah, and and then he, and he takes, just kills them all. Takes yeah, kills them all. Well, but so it seemed to me like the thing that um, that changed him, like up until so he's kind of going along and he's being more. He says he likes Dan from the get go, and he's he's trying to escape, and so he he knows how to manipulate this guy and this guy's son, and he's doing this stuff because he wants to escape and because he is a bad person. But uh, he, you know, the conversation in the hotel room, I think that there's definitely some respect or at the very least, he's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go along with it because you, you need to show your son you're a brave man. But then as they're running through the streets, they get into the, the house and Ben has him dead, dead to rice. And he says, Dan, like, you know, you, the, your son isn't watching anymore. There's nothing else that you need to prove. Right. And Dan tells him the story of how he lost his leg. And that's what changes him. That's what he says. Oh, right. like, okay, n- he goes from being like sort of he he starts dragging uh, Dan along with him rather than you know being supposed like running with him. He carries him um, because Dan says like I lost my leg in a retreat. One of my soldiers shot like shot me in the foot and I lost my leg. Yeah. Um. One of my men. So like he was the leader and he lost his leg because he was retreating. And at that point, he's like, oh, okay, we're going to do this, which is really weird. Like, that's a weird decision. Yeah. What, what, what do you think about that? Like, what? why does he make that decision? Why does this guy make that decision to take him all the way to the train? I think, I think it must just be from from whatever we can say is is love or respect between the two of them. Because he, he likes it when Dan tells the truth and sticks up for himself. Like, he says that, you know, I... When Dan quotes the Bible, I don't like the side of you, Dan. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that that I think feels boring to him, and I think he loves he loves the genuineness of his person because he he really is a very cool person, but he's just so stony browed and and like a boring dad all the time. Yeah, maybe the vulnerability actually engenders love in Ben because it really does seem to be a kind of love, a friendship. What do you think, Lenny? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, throughout the movie, it seems like he's not that he's not in that much of a hurry to escape. Um, that he's just sort of having fun manipulating these people. Like there's a scene in the campsite right after they leave Dan's house where uh, what's his name? The the villain bully guy. Kevin played by Kevin Durant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Tucker. Yeah. Tucker. Yeah. Tucker's, you know, just annoying him and singing the song and stealing his Love horse. That song. And then they all fall asleep 
and then they wake up to Ben killing that guy, right? Yeah. But clearly, if they were all asleep, Ben had the opportunity to escape at that point. But he didn't really care about that. He just wanted to kill this guy because this guy had annoyed him a little too much. Well, because you know? he, he, he annoyed him because he, he took his horse, right? Yeah. And he was a dick to Dan. Yeah. He burned Dan's barn That's down right. and was disrespecting him in his house. And he didn't like that. Even when he was in the house, he's like, this this guy sucks. I hate this guy. And it almost seems like, like I did you a favor, Dan. Like, I killed that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you mad at me? Like, yeah, you tore his throat out with my dinner fork, dude. <laughs> yeah, and then he kills Byron because of a, a slight. You know, it just seems like... Hey, even bad men love their mamas. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great line. That scene is shocking. Just throws him off a horse, and then he's yeah. just gone. You don't even yeah. like see his face when he's dying. Nope, yeah. like, he just falls yeah. down the hill. Yep. Like, yeah, so I wonder if part of it is that he's escaped from you before. So how things shake out over the the time period of the movie doesn't matter to him that much. Um, and it, and maybe if that's the case, the real decision that he makes is in killing his gang because he's just so I don't know heartbroken by by Dan's death. Uh, but maybe apart from that decision, I wonder if the whole movie is just a game for him where none of it's real, none of it's, there's no high stakes. It's another adventure. Yeah, because it seems like he and his gang in multiple towns can just control things. They can do whatever they want. You know, they can turn the entire populace against whoever they want. So clearly there's not a strong rule of law. Um, so, So maybe that justifies his seeming... At, you know his actions that are seemingly uh, against his self-interest because ultimately he's always in control. He's like, let me let me just play along with this thing. I don't know. Like let's let's pull on this thread and see what happens. Um, hey, at least though with Dan gone, he can go back to uh, to Alice and start a new life. You know, <laughs> man, that's, wow. Um, you think he's changed? Like, has he? Does he change through that? Like, does Dan change him? I mean, it seems like. What, what we're saying is that Dan is unique in his experience. He hasn't met a guy who's this principled or, I don't know, like this. And that's why he's done the things that he, he's done. Does that change Ben in the end? Or is he just going to continue being a bad man? I would like to say it does. But the it's cool when you watch the movie and he whistles for the horse. Yeah. And the horse, that's cool. Uh but considering the what the events of the film that you have seen, it's not that cool, right? <laughs> um, it's it's not that chill, and I kind of wish that they that they hadn't done that. But I don't know. There's a part of me that likes the fact that there's a Ben Wade out there who's older and wiser, and maybe didn't go to prison, but maybe stopped being such a douche. And there's another part of me that also wants him to go to prison. Um, but just like all great Western stories, like he gets to go off in the sunset, and who knows what happens? Maybe he goes off and he becomes Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven. Maybe, maybe. All I know is that, you know, he's a cowboy and on a steel horse he rides. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Thank you. You know, he did blow up that train full of full of people. He did. You know, maybe he it. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. What was Clint Eastwood's character name in that? Uh, William Money. William Money. That's right. Yeah. Money. Well, I um, also feel like there's sort of a almost like a Joker thing going on throughout the movie. You know how yeah. in The Dark Knight, the Joker says, you know, I'm just a dog chasing cars. You know, do I look like a guy with a plan? Yeah. Where <laughs> it's obvious he has a very, very elaborate plan. Yeah. But he keeps putting up this front of just being this chaotic, evil character. 
And it seems like there's a similar thing, similar thing going on with Ben where he keeps pretending he's evil. He keeps, you know, he has lines where he's like, you know, I never do a nice thing because it could be habit forming. And he talks about blowing up trains, but he also seems like he has clear principles that he follows. Yeah. And it also seems like he has a lot of, he despises Byron because of the cruelty in Byron's life. The hypocrisy. Which doesn't make any sense if he's equally cruel. So I feel like Ben's character in reality is, yes, he's a criminal, he's an outlaw, but uh, maybe there's a facade of, of supervillain that, that is not who he really is. That might be true. I actually was going to say, I, I kind of think that he's, he's really sincere. Um, and that's why he really doesn't like Byron is because Byron, you know, church going man, but he's killed. He's also killed men, women, children. And Byron says, never killed a soul, didn't deserve it. And he's like, yeah, all right, Byron. Um, but then like his gun is called the hand of God. Like it has a, it has a yeah. crucifix stamped into the butt and the, the cojones on someone to do that. Um, but also I think it, I don't think that's a joke to him. I think a lot of things are jokes to him. But I think that he's when he sees something that he judges wrong, he takes immediate and strong action against it. And it, it's it's whatever he judges. He's he uses the hand of God to to, you know, parse out his own judgment and justice. But I really think that he follows through very quickly and something he hates. He hates casual cruelty. He hates hypocrisy. Um, he hates people taking things that are not theirs, which is ironic. Um <laughs> Specifically taking things from him. Yeah. Um, and uh, what else? Yeah, kind of just like discourteousness. Cowardice. Like he doesn't have a lot of room for cowardice or stupidity. You know, he seems like he has some of these principles himself. He doesn't he like racism. On. He does not like racism. He's, yeah. Not a fan of torture either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so I'd actually, I'd actually say it's like... not so much a facade so much as sincerity. Sorry. Yeah. Well, because it's interesting because it seems like on the one hand, it is shocking that he kills his gang. But there's a there's a line right near the beginning of the movie that's that's always kind of surprising to me, where um, they're in the bar and it's clear he has eyes for the the bartender and he's going to go off with her, and Charlie's trying to dissuade him from from staying there, and uh, and then Charlie says, you know, uh, we're going to go across the border. I'll wait for you, and his response to Charlie is very dismissive, where Charlie is kind of putting his heart out there and saying, I love you, I respect you you're my father you know Master. And, yeah. Yeah. and he's so dismissive like i mean he treats him like a dog yeah so it seems like while he is the leader of this gang maybe he doesn't really have any respect for them maybe yeah. they're just a means to the end and if that's the case maybe the betrayal at the end of the movie is is less you know less a less of a change of character than it may seem it's more traumatic for charlie prince than it is for ben wade yeah he can I mean, find another Charlie's Charlie. eyes when he gets shot is oh, amazing. it's 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 yeah. it's almost heartbreaking. Well, that's an interesting point, though. Like I was thinking about that with um with that because both uh, both Ben and Dan, like it does seem that he's a father figure for for Charlie, and you know, uh, Dan is obviously what's his name, Will's yeah dad as well, and they're both kind of what they're doing is being watched by their their you know their sons. sons, as it were. I wonder, like, does that play into motivations at all? I, I mean, like, obviously, like, like clearly what Dan's doing is like very much has to do with with how his son perceives him and also how he perceives himself, which, again, sort of reflects back onto how his son is going to perceive him, um, you know, by accomplishing this thing, sort of wiping out the retreat in, in uh, Washington. 
but like I don't know what what about with with Ben and and Charlie? We haven't really touched on that. I mean, I I don't know. Is it's a uh, they both have bad relationships with their sons, and there's contempt involved on both sides. I guess Russell Ben Ben uses his gang. It, yeah. It's clear he doesn't have affection for any of them, even when they go out of their way. Like the most the most that one time he thanks them is when they give him his hat back. Right. You know, thank you, Charlie. Thank you, boys. <laughs> but even there, that seems like he's having a fun time, like we were saying earlier. Yeah. Um, and he's stoking the fires like, oh, this is going to get exciting. You know, like if I put the pressure on here, maybe I'll get let go over here or something. And even if not, like they'll get me out because I'm invincible. Hmm. I really I really kind of I, I like what Letney is saying about kind of like they're a means to an end. Yeah. You know, he, he likes the ability to do whatever he wants and being an outlaw with this gang allows him that. I really think that's all that he wants to do. He just wants to do whatever he wants and not in like a crazy chaotic destructive way. It seems like he loves art. It seems like he loves conversation. He, he likes music and, and drawing and he likes these finer things. And then he has to shoot some people so that he can keep doing those things. Yeah. He loves travel. Talks about going to San Francisco all the time. Uh, yeah. I, I don't. He's basically a millennial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there's also the scene where he tells Dan about, I think it's Dan. He tells Dan about his childhood, you know, origin story about how his mom left him at a train station and he read the Bible, you know, like cover to cover three times. Yep. And I, I'm not sure what, what role that is supposed to play in the story, what that's supposed to tell us about his character. It seems like a loose end. I, I, I think what they really, I think what this movie really likes doing is it likes throwing around uh, religious terms, ideas, and it likes sort of just, smushing them into here and be like, what, what do they say in, in the 12 Angry Men? Like, it's running at the flagpole and see who salutes it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think they're just, they're cramming this kind of stuff in yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Just to give it, just to give like some window trappings. Like, yeah, like he, he read the Bible a bunch. He was abandoned by his whore of a mother. Like, uh, is that something? Do we get something at the end? And like, it's, I don't think it really all works out. I don't think that all these details are very necessary. They're fun and they're, they add cool, they, like pulp background, but. Yeah, and it's part of what makes an engaging story. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, like, you you know, like, they want you to notice, like, this relationship that they have between these sunlight characters and mm -hmm. the parental issues or whatever, like, um, that, you know, like, he, he loves, he, his, he, he he loves his mother and he throws a dude off of a cliff for it. And you find out later, like, she abandoned him. Yeah. Like, he threw off a... But I mean, he, he abandons off a cliff. He abandons his son too. Yeah, you know yeah. those who who abandon abandon. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But it, but I think that's probably true. That this is more for uh, what makes a nice story than for making a, a deep sort of statement about I don't know anything. Yeah, because it's not saying anything about religion, and it doesn't seem to be saying much about their society. It's not even remarking on whether or not prostitution is good or bad. And it doesn't seem to be saying too much about anyone's interpersonal relationships with anyone on screen. So in that way, I say it's 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 extraneous. It's fun, but it's like yeah. a it's a who's it? It's a what's it? It's a fugazi. It's a fugazi. Yeah, I think it is something can... about yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I was just gonna say I, the only connection that I can think of is maybe that backstory would sort of explain the distance that Ben has from his you know pseudo children in the gang. That yeah. he keeps keeps it separate because he has abandonment and trust issues, but mm -hmm. I don't know. That's kind of weak. I mean, if you want to read even further into that, maybe that's why he he likes sleeping with with prostitutes and 
and women who run bars is because yeah. they remind him of his mom. If we want to get all Freudian here. <laughs> Green eyes. Green eyes. Yeah. yeah. And skinny. I mean, I do think it does have like, it is saying something about fatherhood, right? Like, like that is what it's saying. And it, it's, he's noticing this and that's probably what he's um, like ex- encountering someone who actually cares enough to do something for his kids. I think that's what's new um, about Dan. And that's why he, I think that's why he's like, Oh, you know, like I'm going to do this for you. I, I don't think it's much further than that though. I could buy that. I could buy that. Yeah. So we, I, I'd like to ask this question here. I see this, see this on our next sheet here. Um, do you have any sympathy for Will's perspective? Do, does anyone have sympathy for Will's perspective? Now I, I'm going to pick this one because when I was saw this movie when I was 14, like Jesse has shared previously, when you're a 14 or 15 year old teenager, you're, you're a, a terrible creature, um, bar- <laughs> barely, barely anything. Barely just, human. Yeah. Just, just a, a raging skinny ball of hormones and you don't know what you're doing, at least for me. And for me, a lot of those hormones manifested themselves in rage and rebellion against my parents, specifically my father. And my dad is actually quite a bit like Dan. He's very principled, um, very exact, and very methodical. And I was a lot like William. I was very angry and would rebel given any chance I could and would fly off the handle at anything and was very contemptible uh, as a kid. And so when I saw this movie, I initially was totally on board with Will's perspective. And I was like, I was like, you know, these guys are being dicks to him. But as the movie went on, I was like, no, he has no place here. This is really a man's struggle. And he should just listen to Batman. I mean, Christian Bale. Um, <laughs> Batman knows everything. Yeah. And but by the end of it and seeing the respect that he has for his father because he stood up for it all, it worked on me. It worked on me as a kid. And that's why I think I saw it as such high cinemas, because it it showed me a character like me and a character like my father and played out a realistic kind of conflict that could happen. And I respected my dad at the end of the movie more because I watched this movie. Yeah, so I had a lot of sympathy for him then. And now as I look at him, I still do. I'm just like, yeah, that's what you're like. That's what teenage boys are like, yes. And that is really difficult. And maybe Dan should have worked a little bit harder, but also like the cards stacked pretty hard against him. I think I think he's a fairly well-written character. He's he's just annoying, but I mean, I think that's why it's well-written. <laughs> that character has to be annoying. Because yeah. if they're not annoying, they're precocious, which is another kind of annoying um, so I guess there's no choice. If you're a teenager, you suck. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he's also fairly competent, though, too, right? Like, yeah. he actually gets the drop on Ben. His dad underestimates him, for sure. Yeah. And that's that's what his dad sees, too. Right. And right. In, in the end, like, it's because of because of William that they get Ben to the train. Speaking of Chekhov's cows. Chekhov's, Chekhov's cows. cows, anybody? <laughs> Good job, Mike. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think? Do, what did you think of the Will character? Lenny. Sure. Yeah. So I guess the, the reason I pose this question is every time I watch this movie, I am incredibly irritated by Will. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because the character is well written or. I think it actually might be reasons... Logan Lerman. I think it might yeah. be the actor. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I like him in a lot of things. See, I think one of the things that for me makes this movie less than great is. I think there's some really interesting ideas and I think there's some great memorable lines and fun action, but I also think the movie injects a lot of melodrama. Oh yeah. And to sort of an absurd degree, you know, <laughs> for, like uh, for such a dirty movie, it's incredibly soapy. Firing all cylinders tonight, baby. <laughs> I like it. I like, like it. There's a, uh, there's like Logan's character who is like, 
you know, like in old Stephen King books, there's bullies that are like ridiculously violent, like an it <laughs> where there's the bully that carves into kids' chests. Yeah. yeah. There's like, always like a bully that's like, all right, I'm going to run you over with my car. <laughs> yeah. Like impossibly ridiculously evil. And it seems like that's Logan's character. Like it's a two dimensionally ridiculously absurdly evil character. And I don't know, that's where I'm struggling with Will's characters. I don't know if it's melodramatic and absurd and over the top, or if there's some real father-son heart going on that is making me upset because I'm tapping into it. I think the lines are really good. I just think that that Logan is playing it at, at he's overacting um, a yeah, lot. Yeah. Like almost every scene he's in, like he should be kind of sullen and instead he's seething. And in this scene, he should be like declarative and instead he's pissy. <laughs> he just takes it like <laughs> too far and he doesn't seem to match the emotions of the people who are in the scene with him. And he has to be the instigator of conflict sometimes. So he must be a little bit elevated, but he's just too up. He's too high. Yeah. And he, at times he comes across as shrill. That annoys me watching it. But also, man, I remember being like that too. I remember like just at the drop of a hat, losing my temper when I was a teenager and just having like no control over my reactions to things that annoyed me. And that's kind of what he's like here. And like the, the casual digs that he throws at his dad, I mean, I did the same shit. Uh, so he's, the character reads really good to me and reads really honest and true. It's just really annoying, but I don't think that's the movie. I think that's just how that person is. Cause man, I was really annoying. <laughs> Well, I guess going off of that, one of the things that also bothers me a little bit about the movie is it seems like there's some of the relationships, maybe this is stereotyping generations, but it seems like some of the relationships are a little anachronistic where, like, I think this is supposed to be set in 1884. Yeah. So in a time when, I mean, again, this is probably stereotyping, but when it was, it was fairly acceptable and regular to beat your children severely. Yeah it seems unrealistic to the time period that a son would be that openly insolent to his father. For sure. But also like this, this father does not have a leg and that boy is pretty strong. I think it might be one of those situations where like you can't anymore. (laughs) You know, interesting. (laughs) Like the son's getting to the age where he could beat up his father. I, I think it's, it's, it's a questionable thing. Like the dad is strong, but he doesn't have a leg. Mm-hmm. And this boy is getting older. And I think that's kind of what we're entering into. And I think that's that's another reason why Dan is is kind of like a, a cuckold here, right? Is that that, that that's a, that's, that's I'm, a strong word. I, I know well, what I'm you using mean. it wrong. What I mean is that he feels completely emasculated yeah. in his family. He yeah. can't control his kids. His little boy is, is chirping up all the time at dinner in front of strangers. And he can't seem to tell him what to do. And his, his older boy is mouthing off and his wife is like openly taken in by the murdering outlaw. Like he's, he's losing everything. He has no control over anything and is losing the place of respect in the eyes of those that he loves and respects. And I think that's just another element to it. Does that, does that make sense or is it, is it still too annoying? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, maybe the heart of the annoyingness is he is really overacting a bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that definitely gives more context what I was thinking. Okay. So moving away kind of from talking about the, the story itself and the, the machinations of the characters motivations. No. Okay. And the machinations, the machining of the characters, the way that they're they're put into the machine (laughs) and and turned into Yeah. Anyway, the dream factory. Yeah. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. 
How do, how, how does it, you know, is this a normal Western? Is it a revisionist Western, Vito? Uh, I think it's both. I think it's okay. definitely both because it's the kind of shit that we're used to seeing because it's a classic story from a long time ago. Uh, but it's also got some new stuff in it. You know, we have this, we have a villain who is remarkably compelling, right? Yeah. And we have a hero who's remarkably boring. And this is not very normal uh, for your normal classic Western, but it seems to be doing both of these things. It's it's revising its history. It's looking back, but it's not doing it in the way that Unforgiven was. You know, Mike and I, you and I were talking and Letting and I, you were talking to you separately. We should have just done it together, but that's why we're here doing a podcast. Yeah. But the Unforgiven seems to be looking back with like uh, an air of, of shame almost. Yeah. It's definitely jaded. Yeah. Yeah. William Money and Clint Eastwood by extension seem to be regretful almost of roles that they played in, in society. And especially with for Clint Eastwood in this year's upcoming Cry Macho, he seems very much to be commenting on his past career and things that he's done. And in that way, that's like a true revisionist Western. There's very little gun violence um, until the end. And when it is, it, it feels bad. You know, the violence feels really gross and not like the thrilling, fun John Wayne, like knocking a guy through a wall or blowing a guy up with a shotgun or whatever. Yeah. And this one, it, it seems to be, it seems to be doing two things, right? It seems to be having these awesome rollicking shootouts, but the violence is incredibly dirty and very bloody and it's in just really intense consequences. And there's some, like, it, it's got both like the really fun shootouts and then like, you know, the sort of the brutal brusqueness with which like Byron gets thrown off the ledge or Tucker gets his throat torn out. Yeah. Or, uh, or even when we see uh, Ben get tortured. Yep. Like this is some, wow, brutal shit. Yeah. Um, weirdly there, despite the fact that we, you know, saw a guy get his, sh his throat shot and that's like, it's sort of brutal, but it's also, I don't know. It's kind of fun. I don't it feels know. old. It feels old hat. Yeah, maybe, you know, I like know. it's a, it's a Western. So we're going to see some people shot, but like yeah. when Charlie Prince gets shot twice and gets pulled in by Ben oh and shot gosh. right through the heart, Boom. that's really upsetting. Uh, and, and the violence is, is very stylized and very, and very glamorized in some sense. Um, that is just not the case with Unforgiven. And it's amazing that like 17 years separate these movies and, or a little bit less. Unforgiven is 92, I think. I think I misstated it as 1990 earlier. Right, 92? I think it's 92. Yeah. But no, you had, you had it for the point. You had it for the point. I want to hear it. I'm sorry, which was? What was your point? Brutal and realistic? I thought that was my point. Oh, yeah. And well, oh, and then it's weird that these come out like 17 or oh, some yeah. odd years apart. Um, and uh, we've got, I don't know, go go from there. No, well, because of the, the 17 years that separated, it's weird that we have already kind of forgotten the the, the face of our father already huh. <laughs> of Clint Eastwood. And it's like <laughs> he makes this grand statement with Unforgiven. And then movies are like, yeah, but. Remember Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? <laughs> like, like remember fun. remember the other ones that he did? Remember Outlaw Josie Wales <laughs> with the Gatling gun? And you're like, yeah, I do. But remember like the grand sweeping statement he made about sort of the death of the West and, and how things can't be the same and your heroes are never who you think they are? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, 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 like, but like a bad guy, he like likes the Bible, all right? <laughs> and he's got a crucifix in his gun. Like we're going to do like, it's it, it honestly feels like Tarantino took, took this over like i know he didn't and it was nowhere near it but this feels like a tarantino western and he's gonna he's gonna pay homage and lip service to all the stuff that came in the past but he's gonna be like we're gonna do this thing now and it's gonna be both things it's gonna be jaded and sincere it's gonna be bloody and brutal it's gonna be like fun and not um and it tries to walk this line and i and i think it ends up the worse for it 
Um, I think it's too much. I think it's it's too much of everything. I think it actually kind of needs to pick something a little bit sooner and try and just be about that. Like, why are there why are there Native Americans at all in this movie? Remember, there's like multiple scenes right. where they have to fight off Native Americans who are never seen. Yeah. <laughs> like, why 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 are it, we yeah, doing it seems, this? It seems unnecessary. Like, they use it to sort of show how Ben is going to be like helpful. He's, he's helpful, but it's also for his own sake, sort of. But. Then he comes. It doesn't seem necessary. They they already showed that and show it later. And again. I kind of wonder if it's just because like it's a cowboy movie, so we need some Indians. Yeah. Like and it, it like there's just moments like that that this movie doesn't feel as complete. It feels like it's trying to do too many things. Um, mm-hmm. specifically in this way as a western, it wants to give you the the Saturday matinee, but it also wants to be a, a morality play. And it really is mostly just set up to be a morality play. And when you try and inject these other elements, like the, you mentioned the stagecoach scene is one of your favorite ones. I actually think it's the worst scene of the movie for me. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't think yeah. it functions well in the movie. I, I'm confused by its presence. Like, I know we need to have an inciting incident, but why is it so big? Like, yeah. just, just rob a freaking stagecoach. Like, it's still exciting. We don't need a Gatling gun and dynamite and like 30 people. <laughs> uh, it feels like a lot. It feels like Fast and Furious. Uh, it, feels, <laughs> it feels a little too fast, a little too furious. You know, <laughs> wonder where the writers got that. Huh, interesting. Very um, interesting. That That's kind of all my thoughts, though, is. is so how how is it? Revi- so, I mean, I, I feel like what you said is that it sort of plays like the greatest hits, um, which makes it maybe a little longer than it needs to be and makes it. But how is it revisionist then? Like, is, because it, of the, is it just the, because of the bad guy and the good guy dynamic? Okay. I think that that. Well, it's it's just not yeah. in other things like we'd always the bad guy is always wily and dynamic. But the good guy was always such a strong force for good. They were equal parts yeah. swooshing away at each other. Yeah. Um, and the bad guy was eventually undone either by his hubris or the good guy's, you know, quick thinking or quick shot or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in this one, that doesn't happen. Um, the bad guy is not vanquished, actually. The bad guy lives. He wins in the end. Yeah, he wins carrying on the good guy's role. And in that way, it feels very different and strange. And also the fact that our good guy is not impressive. He's yeah. kind of a loser. He doesn't have a leg. Yeah. And even, yeah. even beyond that, it's like, he doesn't even have like a badass shotgun leg. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I think that's, that's, what's interesting about it. It feels more slice of life and uh, yeah, but by doing these two things, I, I think, I think it suffers a little, but so, okay. With, with Unforgiven, I mean, that's making a bold, uh, a vast statement about like cowboy movies in the West and all of this stuff, like mm-hmm. our, our, uh, our, our love for the cowboy. Um, and how that's maybe misguided. Uh, is this one making a statement about it, or is the statement just like, remember when these things were cool? I don't. I don't know if it's making a statement. Do you think this this is a statement movie, Letney? Um, well, so I think I'm going to be one of those irritating people that brings up the older version of the movie. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, read the I book. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, we already but, had uh, Sir come on here and talk about the big sleep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we love you. We love you, Sir. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, but there's um in the uh, in the hotel room scene in the 57 version there's another component to it where his wife actually comes to the hotel room and begs him not to go and he gives his justification for going and his justification is um this is what he says he says i've got to that's all honest to god if i didn't have to do it i wouldn't but i heard alex scream the town drunk gave his life because he believed that people should be able to live in decency and peace together you think I can do less? Um, so I think 
I think in the older version of the movie, there's this idea of standing up for justice and goodness. And it takes, it takes individual men to make, to make, you know, greatness, to make change. And it seems like where this movie is being revisionist and flipping on his head is precisely that final part of the movie where the entire town of contention turns on him. So it makes his principled action of standing up for what's right completely futile, right? He's, he's not contributing to a good society because no good society exists because everyone in the town is completely vicious. They're willing to commit murder for $200. Um, so it's, it seems like that's where the revisionist is happening. At least that's part of the revisionist aspect yeah, yeah. of the movie is that it's, it's very nihilistic about human society in general, I guess. Yeah, I think especially considering the, the time period that this came out in. Remember the Dark Knight had kind of a similar statement, right? But considering yeah. this is like during the war on terror, uh, things are very scary at this time. I don't know if you guys remember like all the instability, all our parents fretting about kind of how things were going. I mean, they were right to fret, I guess. Uh, but I, I remember there being a lot of movies like this where society was painted very nihilistically. We're like, yeah, we can't trust anybody and it would be stupid to try. Um, until the Dark Knight comes along where he's like, no, there's good. <laughs> and you're like, yes, but you're also being a terrorist, Batman. <laughs> don't use other people's cell phones. Uh, I don't care if the Patriot Act lets you. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that that is also happening here. And I think that that's an interesting, it's weird now that this movie is a time capsule back to to those Bush era war on terror days. I mean, like, wow, like we really distrusted each other a lot then. Yeah. And then I look out my window and I'm like, hmm, that guy's getting near my lawn. I hope he doesn't have COVID. <laughs> Get out of here! <laughs> I'm the mailman! I have to do this! <laughs> and then I, then I go back in and watch my movies from 2007 and be like, wow, we distrusted each other a lot then. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Well, it's interesting, too, because it, it ends up like he does say that he gives sort of I, I felt like he gave lip service to that idea that he has to stand up for what's right. But I didn't feel like he actually was doing it for that reason at all. No. Um, and it's it was entirely for his own like for, for his personal sake so that he could, you know, stand tall and so that his kid could look up to him, um, which is interesting. So, so it's almost like, you know, this idea that just to sort of piggyback on your point like the this world it doesn't need good men because it won't you know it, it won't become a good place we've been trying that for all of hollywood to to fix what's wrong with uh humanity through the good guy in these cowboy movies what instead you need to do is focus on what like being being a i don't know individually principled yeah it seems to be it, it you need to be like it kind of makes sense why in terms of a longer scale, why Christian Bale would choose to do this movie and Batman Begins in the Dark Knight. It's kind of just the same character. Yeah. I'm going to do this for myself. This is why I do it because it's for me. Not, not, not uh, like what does Thomas More say in a man for all seasons? <laughs> not, not, not for my sake, but for, for my for sake. My <laughs> sake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, um, I think, so anyway, just sort of wrapping up that whole point, I think it's the reason why we kind of wanted to do Unforgiven and and 310 to Yuma, the reason why Jesse came up with the idea to even um, construct a series like this was to be able to talk about the Western, the modern Western through the time that we've been alive. And so starting with Unforgiven, this bleaker looking back, and then this one, which is a much more, more rosy set of looking back, but also with with the the tint of 
2007's politics and worldview. Um, it'll be really interesting when we do our, our third one, which will be on uh, the Coen Brothers remake of, of True Grit. Yeah. Came out in 2010, just three years after this. Um, I think that we'll have a little bit more to say on this topic then as well. Any other questions you guys have? Anything else you want to talk about, Lenny? Uh, there is one thing I wanted to bring up about the violence. Oh, Ooh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, ask it. Okay. Uh, well, so one thing I noticed about this movie, and I guess maybe I'm thinking more about the 57 version, is is how the violence is dramatically different. So in the in the 57 version, it's ju- in, in the final action scene, it's just him versus the seven members of the gang, which to me is very similar to like High Noon. Yeah, where the whole movie is about one guy facing five guys. And it seems like in the older Westerns, there was this very simple math going on where even like four, four or five guys against one guys was insurmountable odds. You know, that, that, that changed people's minds. You know, one extra guy and the whole town backs down. And uh, it seems like this movie, there's multiple times where one character just kills six guys effortlessly. Um, mm-hmm. So... I really, I really I mean, appreciate I do that. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Uh, I don't know that very grounded violence in the older movies, and it seems like this takes it to a almost like superhero absurd level of violence. Not think, in terms of how gory it is, but how in terms of how unrealistically uh, skilled the, the fighters can be. I kind of think that video games are responsible for this. Um, I don't want to be like one of those boomers that's like, mm, video games. But I really do think so because that's like when I <laughs> when Batman drops in a room and there's six guys, I'm like, yeah, it's like a cakewalk. They're grunts. He's a legend. <laughs> and so when when, you know, when there's these the people are just like falling by the scores left and right, dying all over the place and people are just shooting and people are. Oh, no, he got me. Um, it's like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, they're the hero. Like, it's so stupid. You would try and shoot the hero. You're an NPC. Like, <laughs> you don't matter. You're not even a person. <laughs> and yeah, I, I do miss that when the violence had real stakes. That's actually why horror is still so engaging to me is that one-on-one conflict. Like, you can spend an entire horror movie trying to kill one person. Right. Because uh, guess what? It's really hard to kill people. <laughs> it's really difficult to do. <laughs> it is not very easy. T- tell, tell us more about your experience with that. <laughs> There's please, this one guy please. I was chasing down. Um, yeah, skulls are hard. <laughs> Let's put it this way. <laughs> but I like I, I like it when the violence feels feels very grounded and feels like it's a big deal, like an unforgiven. It's been so long without without there being real violence, um, and when it finally does happen, it's so abrupt and shocking. And when in the final scene, you know, spoilers for Unforgiven. If you haven't seen the final scene, very sorry. But when William Money is drunk and he comes into the bar and he gives them all like the one last chance and then just murders like five guys. Yeah. But he's so good and they're so bad. And the movie clearly demonstrates that they're very bad at this. And he is very good. It doesn't feel like a magic act. It just feels like someone who is very skilled. And in this one, it feels like a magic act. In this one, Russell Crowe is like, well, yeah, I'm just good. I just shoot real fast. Why don't you guys just shoot real fast? <laughs> and everyone's like, we just can't shoot as fast as you, man. Uh, it kind of feels like cheating. It kind of feels like, you know, you, you you applied too many buffs to your character and now you're, you're walking through this landscape. Um, yeah, because Unforgiven has that amazing scene in the jail cell where, uh, I can't remember any of the characters' names, but the... Gene Hackman uh, and and the writer and then the, the Duke the in Duke, the cell. The Duck. The duck, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's the sheriff guy, and he's demonstrating as Dang. a writer guy um, that 
it's not about how fast you can shoot. It's about how cool you can be under pressure. And it seems like, yeah, that really pays off in the end scene where Money, whatever his name is, is the only guy who has that real confidence and that real. And he's and he's not fast. Cool. He's just yeah. like he's super. Yeah. He's like super boom, slow. Boom, <laughs> boom, and everyone else is like freaking out and don't know what to do. And in this one, everyone is cool and and fast. Yeah, well, I mean, even in that like tunnel scene where uh, Charlie Prince shoots like the three guys or whatever. Yeah, like he might have gotten the first guy, but he doesn't look at a single one of them. He yeah. just pulls out his guns, boom, boom, like. Right in front of him, two on the side, and yeah. they're they're all dead. They're all dead. He gets them dead. Yeah, it's he's got everyone's got one shot kill on yeah. in, this, in this movie. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like like these are big fat bullets that go real slow, and people are just like taking one right to the front and being like, "Nope, that's it for me." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess if you want to make a visually cool action movie. It's sort of an escalating thing. Like you can't really go backwards. It has to be more and more each time. So that's why they shouldn't have started with the with the stagecoach. It's just you start so high. <laughs> it's just, I, it's I, too I much. Firmly admit that, or willingly admit that, that is not necessarily a good scene. But I love that scene. I mean, it, I, I think all it's more power too. A ton of fun. I have a blast. I, well, I, I think that the the action part of that scene is not very great. But everything after the stagecoach crashes is probably like my second favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I, I really like how it like juxt- it, it combines both this over the top violence with like some deep character work and, and exposition. Like you get who all of these people are in that scene. Um, and it's like, like deep exposition. They're, they're really painting pictures. Yeah. 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 I'm going to defend my love for that scene. You don't have to defend it. I'm not I'm attacking your to. love for it. Oh, I know you are. <laughs> no, I'm not attacking your love for it. You can love anything you want. Modest Mouse, for instance. Um. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have to defend that. That is manifestly great. Um, yeah. But I think then, I think that, that's going to wrap it up for us here, just talking about the movie in, Well, we've in got general. we've got a final question or we, two. Well, yeah, but talk yeah. about the movie yeah, in general. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. Anything, else, anything left to discuss with 310 to Yuma? Well, I, I want to know, Letney, do you think that this is a dad movie? Go. Well, I guess going back to right at the beginning when I was talking about how, you know, like Christian Bale and Russell Crowe imprinted on at least me, I assume a lot of our generation. Um, I wonder if, if and when I show this to my kids, it's going to be a disappointing experience because Maybe Christian Bale and Russell Crowe won't be iconic to them the way they were for me. Uh, so I think a lot of, well, so I think it's a dad movie, but I think a lot of its timelessness is kind of contingent on how much my love of the movie is contingent on how much I love those actors and how important they were to me growing up. But yeah, short answer, I think, yeah, it's a dad movie. I think it's it's so quotable. It's it's so fun. The acting is so great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's an iconic western. Yeah, I, I I definitely see what you're saying. I I feel that in a few years, if there is physical media that large stores sell, um, this is going to be in a bargain bin at some point. Mm. Like I think I really do think this in 20, 30 years, three ten to Yuma will be kind of a deep cut in these guys' careers. Yeah, because um, it's I mean for for Christian Bale, it's 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 bookended by two Batman movies, right. <laughs> you know, I think it's going to fall through the cracks. And then for Russell Crowe, you know, he's just coming off of Cinderella man. 
and he, he's kind of uh, Noah's he going after to, this. He, no, he doesn't he do American Gangster after this, or is that the that's, same? That's year? the next year. No, it yeah. is the same year. I yeah. think it is. Yeah, that that was the much bigger. I feel like that was a bigger movie, yeah. or had more lasting power. I feel like people still talk about American Gangster, even though I don't know if it, I don't think it's as. Good I think as this they movie. talk about its imperfections. Yeah, um, it should have been bigger. Should have yeah. been better. I mean, Denzel and and, and Russell it should have been one of the best movies of all time. Yeah, and it's just not. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I think, think also if you if you look at the the act the the actor the Western actors that have staying power from past generations. The two names that come to mind for me are John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. And both of them had large libraries in that genre. You know, they did a lot of Westerns, whereas these guys only have one. So I don't know how much permanence it's going to have. I think it'll just be a fun, a fun one that maybe like, cause I'm going to say this is a dad movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a fun one that I think my kids will probably remember me watching a couple times and be like, oh yeah, dad likes that movie. And yeah. as soon as I check out the old one, you know, I'd, I'd love to. Maybe show them that one in conjunction with it, or or maybe sometimes instead of you know when they're younger, because um, it's it's a it's a really good story. Yeah, I'd say I think it's a dad movie. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's yeah. something I, I'm excited to show it to my kids. They might not like it, but you know I, I get to decide as long as I I still have my leg. Uh, no, but no, I and I think I mean Russell Crowe. So this was written here, and I, I and you decided to go past it, but I'm not going to. Um, Vito had a question here. Who was the the um, the bigger dad actor, uh, Russell Crowe or Christian Bale? And for me, Russell Crowe is just like he he is the guy for me that I we we watch as a family. Like most uh, Christian Bale, we didn't watch his movies as a family really. Like Batman wasn't a family. I mean, like movie. that what, was a me movie. I mean, what are you gonna do? You gonna watch American Psycho? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, but uh, but I mean, everything from the 2000s that Russell Crowe did was something we watched together. Cinderella well, I think, Man is I think, favorite, I think this is a know? question, though, is like Russell Crowe, I grant, more family. But I think Christian Bale's more dad. Because like, okay. look, looking at these, like The Fighter, I love The Fighter. Uh, the Big Short, I love The Big Short. Ford Ferrari's great. Uh, uh, public Enemies, I like Public Enemies a lot. But these are not ones that I would watch with my family. I'm watching yeah. these by myself, which... In, in the question that Sir brought up, you know, before, are we talking about dad movies or family movies? And I think it's that's why it's hard because one is more solo or like with your wife or whatever, and one is more everybody. That's why it's difficult for me. Yeah. Because I'll watch many Christian Bale movies by myself. Rain of I Fire. won't watch that many Russell Crowe movies by myself. Interesting. Well, yeah, but is that because like the Russell Crowe movies you wouldn't watch by yourself because they're such a good time and you want other people there? Kind of, but like, why would I sit down to watch A Beautiful Mind by myself? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that—that's—that's—that that's, feels like a movie night. That feels like yeah. this is like a, a heartwarming thing. And but then I would never call a movie night for um, American Hustle. You know, yeah. even though that when I went to see it in theaters, uh, I had a really great time with. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's why. That's why it's a hard question. I, I feel like I feel like they're locked in eternal battle. And it's not until we see Zeus fight Gore that we'll really know who comes out on top. So excited! <laughs> I'm so excited. I, I mean, for me, there's a pretty clear answer, just because Master Commander was a big yes father son movie for me and my dad. Yeah. And maybe consequently, it's probably one of my all time favorite movies. Yeah. Wow. So for that reason alone, it's Russell Crowe. I see. Yeah. And there's a strong argument for Russell Crowe because like I love the next three days and Noah and the nice guys like a lot. And I'll watch those by myself. And the insider is, is one of my favorite movies of all time, but I want more people. I would like, 
I would like to live in a world where people wanted to sit down and watch The Insider with me, but no one wants to, but it's so good. <sighs> this is a hard one for me. But then, like, I'll watch Little Women with people. Anyway, I don't know. That, that's why I didn't <laughs> want to do the question. This is so complicated. It's so hard. I feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm with Letney here. Definitely, he's more of the dad actor. Christian Bale is, like, the guy actor, you know? He's me as a guy. And, like, that's intrinsic to me as a dad, you know? But... I'm holding off. I'm holding off. Right. I, I need to see the god killer take down Zeus. Um, once, I, once I see that, I'll know all. That'll be very interesting. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that just on a gut level, Russell Crowe feels like a dad to me, whereas Christian Bale feels like a man to me. Do, do you respond deeply with that. the fact that, that Russell Crowe like assaulted a hotel porter with a phone? <laughs> like, is, is that, does that feel more dad to you? <laughs> I feel like his weight gain over the last several years feels more has mirrored dad. your journey. <laughs> <laughs> feels more dad than, than than Christian Bale's constant starving of himself. That's true. I'll say that. I just I always identified more with Christian Bale. He's my guy. I don't know. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to call call close yeah, to this. Yeah, there's no are. there's no okay, answer to so, this question. So it's a three way dad movie. Three way dad movie and if Jesse were here that would make it four because Absolutely. I know I know that he may, he ranks this high. Um and I was really happy we were able to do it. I'm sad we weren't able to do it with Jesse, but he got to say what he wanted to say on his birthday episode. So please go back, check that out. It happened back in February. Um, it's titled Jesse's Birthday. Um, but for all of us at Not Your Father's Movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. And I'm Lenny. Good night.